let's open up our Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, ushers will get one to you. But we are in Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> and we are uh, <laughs> going to be in Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, again. So... I feel like this text aligns with what I, I feel and pray God is doing in our church. If you're wondering why am I lingering here so long, it's because I, I feel, I desire, I pray that God would be moving our church outward just as he is moving his disciples in this text outward as well. So I just want to linger here and I want it to become a part of our reality. Uh, not just something we see the disciples doing, Jesus doing with the disciples, but something that he's doing with us. So let's uh, let's read this text. I'll pray and we will dive in. And he, Jesus, called the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. They departed, went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Let's... God, I wonder what we'd be feeling if you were to give us those instructions here today. If we were to really sense that you are calling us to go. I wonder how we'd feel if we heard you say, hey, take nothing, not even bread. Press into relationships in the cities you visit and where they don't receive you. Let them know judgment is coming. God, would we, would we have the courage, the faith to move, to follow, to listen? To walk that missionary road. And I pray that you would use our time and your word this morning to search our hearts. Expose us before you, God. We don't come to church to hide. We come to church like a, like a sick person comes to a physician. You don't hide from the x-ray. You pray that the x-ray shows what's wrong so that you can be healed. So God, we don't hide from your eyes because your eyes bring healing. Your word exposes, but not to shame. To restore and cover. To change and transform and renew. And so God, we just we want to be like Jesus. We want to be missionaries like you were. We want to be sent by the Father as you were sent. So would you come by your spirit, use this time towards that end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Um, hold on one second, I'm sorry. So we come now, as I said, to the uh, fifth week on this text. And um, really the, the overarching conclusion we've made uh, is the title of this, what you can now call this little mini-series, uh, namely Every Saint Sent. Uh, what we concluded from these verses it, fundamentally is that not, not only is Jesus uh, sending his apostles, in this case the twelve, out as missionaries into the world, but we did some work to realize he's sending us as well. I mean, we are a missionary church. We are a, a church on Christ's mission in the world. Every saint, if you are a Christian, you are a sent one from God. So in verses 1 through the first part of verse 2, we saw what I called preparatives. In other words, some of the prerequisites involved in the making of this sort of a missionary. We noted that uh, we need to be first called into communion, close communion with Christ, given power and authority so that it's his uh, work that we're doing and his power, not our own. And then sent by him. Right? So first preparatives. And then as we moved into the second part of verse 2, we talked about for three weeks uh, what I called objectives. Namely, if we are missionaries sent out by God, what in fact are we sent out to do? And the second part of verse 2 gives us two things in particular. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Or, as we've been talking about it, to share the story, the story, and to show the story. Or, the ministry of word, proclaim, evangelize, and the ministry of deed, serve, get low, humble, heal, restore, meet people where they are, the stuff that really matters to them. Now, this morning... We come uh, in verses 3 through 5 to what I would call directives. Directives. Here are particular instructions that Jesus gives to his apostles for this mission he is sending them on. And from these directives, we can actually kind of extrapolate certain principles that will uh, serve as guidance for our own mission and life uh, here today. I see, in particular, three directives that I'm going to focus on, and they kind of move, really, verse by verse through those three verses. First, take nothing, he says, verse 3. Second, stay there, he says in verse 4. And then third, shake off, he says in verse 5. So we're just going to grab those one by one. I hope you're ready. Get your seatbelts on. Here we go. Uh, first, take nothing. It's there again in verse 3, and I want to I read it again with you. He said to them, here it is, take nothing for your journey. No staff. Now, a staff would have been a stick used to aid in walking, uh, also perhaps to kind of fend off robbers. So this would be pretty good, maybe akin to a bow staff, you might say. Somebody already talked about ninja stars in the announcements. Maybe we can talk about bow staffs now in the sermon. Um, no staff, nor bag, which would have been probably a traveler's bag or something akin to a suitcase, nor bread, nor money. 
and do not have two tunics, which was kind of the long garment that they would wear uh, closest to the skin under their cloak, kind of keeping them warm and things. So the reason why I wanted to read that one more time is because I want I want to think with you about this for a moment. Jesus is not not talking about don't take along mm, secondary, non-essential items that might weigh you down. You know, like if you've ever gone backpacking, you kind of don't take those secondary items. You take all the stuff you really need, like food and stuff to keep you warm and stuff to protect you from bears or whatever it is. You don't leave that stuff out, but everything else is gone. You don't bring your blow dryer. You don't bring your body pillow, right? But those aren't the sort of things that Jesus is talking about here. When he says take nothing, he essentially is meaning take nothing. He's talking about the very things you would think you need to survive on this journey. And that ought to be striking for us as we look at it. Because he's just saying, listen, I'm asking you to leave all that back here with me. Leave the backpack. And just go. Just go. The um, type A, like myself among us, probably start freaking out at this point when you think about it. We know what it's like to plan a good trip, and this doesn't seem right. This seems irresponsible. This seems like, you know, well, actually, I'm not sure this is a good idea, Jesus. We'd be pushing back on this because we like to plan. We do our research. We line up our places. We get everything in order. We have our our, our itineraries, and if stuff goes wrong, contingency plans and contingency plans for contingency plans so that we know what to expect. We got this trip handled. And Jesus pushes into that sort of mentality here for a moment. Now, again, I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with being responsible, planning trips, all that. Art and I have been rapping back and forth about how we're going to plan this Christmas Eve service and all that. But Jesus in this moment pushes in and says, hey, hold on, stop all that. Oops, I forgot I have a mic. Stop all that. Just go. Just go. Now, I want to ask the question, why? Why does he do that? Why does he uh, uh, call them to leave everything and go? What is he getting at? What is he trying to teach them? Two things I'll bring out here in particular. I think he's trying to establish in the hearts of his disciples at the outset of their ministry Both a sense of urgency and a sense of dependency. Okay? Urgency and dependency. Let me take those one by one. The mission is urgent. No earthly concern ought to take precedent over, or precedence over this mission. The sharing of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The declaration among the people of Israel that the Messiah is here. That salvation has come near. According to Jesus, man, leave your bag, leave your bread, leave your money. There is nothing more important than bringing the gospel to those who desperately need to hear it. Nothing. I think that's 
part of the implication. I think that's part of what he's trying to get into the hearts of his disciples. I mean, there is nothing on earth that should take precedence over this. Now, think of a time in your life when something was so urgent for you that you left everything (laughs) to go and take care of whatever it might be. Maybe um, it was the night that your water broke three weeks before your due date, right? And... Husband's pacing the floor, you know, what in the world are we going to do? We don't have the bedroom ready. We don't have the hospital bag packed. We don't even have a name for this little child. But I'll tell you what, I am not about to deliver this little one in my living room. Get in the car, we're going. Whether we're ready or not, the situation is urgent. You leave everything else behind and go take care of it, right? Or perhaps another example, a little bit closer to home these days, northern, southern, California as a whole has been on fire, right? On fire, burning unprecedented ways, right? I was reading about what's going on down there in southern California. When the Santa Anas get going, I mean, it's, it's swallowing up an acre, or I'm sorry, a football field a second, just the thing just moving so fast. And here's the reality. If that's moving towards your home, you're not packing a suitcase. You're not uh, getting a snack for the road. You might even have, you know, a bundle of cash under the bed that you were keeping for who knows what. And you're just going to let that go up in flames rather than yourself because the situation is urgent. You're going to go. Because that's what this calls for. And I think this is the sort of thing that Jesus is trying to get at with his disciples. When he says, stop it with the planning. Stop it with the, you know, packing the bags and getting everything ready and all this. Go. There is an urgency to the mess, to the mission. It is not just a vacation. It is an emergency. Get the gospel to these people. My father will take care of you as you go. Go. So now the question really becomes for us, do we um, sense this in our approach to evangelism or the way that we even consider it? Do we sense the urgency that Jesus wants in the hearts of his disciples? Is that in us. Uh, we need to face the fact, I think that often, and this was probably the most striking part of this, well, no, I can't say that, but one of the most striking parts of the sermon for me, just thinking about, do I feel the urgency? Do I really feel it? Or I think, ah, there'll be tomorrow. Ah, uh, you know, we'll kind of, we'll wait on that. Do I really feel like uh, water broke at Calvary? And judgment is coming soon. Do I really feel like the Santa Ana winds are blowing and the wrath of God is coming for my neighbors, my neighbor, my city? 
my family? Do I really feel that sense of urgency? He says, listen, even if I have to leave behind every, even if I have to leave behind a good reputation with these people, saving face, whatever, can I just be a fool for Jesus and do this? Because the situation calls for it. Do I believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31? I think of this text often, but does it guide my life? He says this, The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now don't misunderstand Paul here. Or Jesus or me. He's not talking about, hey, don't, you know, love your wife. He'll say in Ephesians 5, you better love your wife, right? He's not saying don't go to the store and buy things. He's not saying don't get a job and all this sort of stuff. He'll give plenty of advice on how to do these sorts of things. But what he is saying is the time is short. So how you handle your marriage, how you handle your money and your possessions, how you handle your work, all changes in light of the urgent situation that we find ourselves in. The last days, it's not coming, you know, sometime way out there. The last days were initiated when Jesus died and rose again. That's when Peter would open his mouth and say, the last days are upon us in essence. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Do we feel that? Is everything in our lives marshaled uh, uh, in light of that reality? I'll just leave that there for you to think about. Second thing I said he's getting at... um, in this directive to take nothing, uh, not just urgency, but now dependency as well. And the two are related, but I'll bring this one out for you. This one perhaps is even clearer for us. He's trying to teach us to depend on God alone. He says, take nothing, not because we're going to be abandoned and left to die. He says, take nothing because his father will provide everything. Because my dad owns the world. (laughs) What are we worried about? We can get in a little suitcase before we go. We're taking some sticks. We can fend off robbers. When my dad owns the world. So go. And in dependency on him, all, all will be fine. All will be fine. And if we're honest, um, our plans and our contingency plans, though we call that being faithful, We call it being responsible. A lot of times they're not always done in good faith, right? A lot of times we plan and we do these sorts of things because we kind of want to make sure that if God doesn't show up, things still go well. Or maybe even more, it actually exposes a sense in us that I'm not sure God is going to take care of me. So I've got to take care of myself. So, Here's how urgency and dependency relate a little bit. 
We don't have time to worry about the mission because we're so busy feeling like the stuff in our own lives is so urgent and in need of our attention. We get so distracted with, man, I got to save up money for something. I got to line up this or that. I got to get the five-year plan. I got to get the retirement fund. If I don't get all this stuff in line, then it's not going to go well for me. And Jesus is saying here, you're free. You're not a slave. You're not a slave that has to go and get what you can and then try your best to keep it. Worry yourself to death trying to keep your reputation or your job or your bank account or your health. Your dad owns the world and your dad loves you. And so because he is giving himself to you in that way, you are free to give yourself to him and his mission in this world. And the stuff that you own, the stuff that you have, the job, it all, again, can be used for the mission. Not white-knuckled and held in close, because who knows if God's going to provide. But given freely, because if I give it away to you, well, I'll just get back from the Father. I'm sure that's the meaning. This isn't in my notes. This is just free. We'll get there in a few weeks or months, but... Coming coming later in Luke, I misspoke there. <laughs> coming later in Luke 9, the feeding of the 5,000. What happens at the end of that? Do, do you remember how this story ends? So they have just a little bit of loaves or this or that. They're like, man, we're never going to feed these crowds. How are we going to pull this off? Are you serious, Jesus? I think we just need to send them back. He says, no, why don't you do it? Because he's teaching them how to be missionaries. Why don't you figure out what we're going to do? Gives them the bread. They start to give it to the people. What is left over at the end of all of their missionary work? work 12 baskets for who 12 disciples right 12 baskets full of food for these guys who've been pouring themselves out in other words man you can give yourself to the mission generosity radical generosity because you have a god who's going to take care of you in the midst of it your needs will not be forgotten he will provide it's pretty amazing So this, I think, is the sort of thing that Jesus is getting at when he says, take nothing. He's implicitly getting at here what he will state a lot more plainly later. So a text maybe some of you were thinking I was going to go to, and here I am going to it. Luke twelve twenty-eight through 32, he says this, O you of little faith. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then he concludes with this wonderful promise. Hear this. You who are afraid, you who are worried, you who keep yourself up at night wondering how situations are going to fall together and what you need to do to get it to work out right. Hear God say this to you. Verse 32, Luke 12. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure, good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to take care of you. There's this awesome conversation conversation Jesus has at the end, really, when he's about to leave. Luke 22, um, verse 35. He's talking to his disciples. 
And he's referencing these earlier missions trips, Luke 9, 10. Uh, we're obviously in Luke, the one in Luke 9 right now. He's referencing these earlier mission trips. And this is what he says. He says, listen, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. Nothing. We took nothing, but we lacked nothing because our Father provides. And that's what we will see as we go out with Him as well, is that we are free. We're free to give ourselves to the urgency of this mission instead of treating our lives like everything we have is urgent because He will take care of us as we go. Now, so first, uh, directive, take nothing. Second, now, stay there, we see in verse 4. Stay there. Uh, as we move towards the second directive, interestingly, we, co- we come to find that um, God is actually planning to provide for these disciples by means of the very people he is sending them to reach. Did you hear that? He's planning to provide for these disciples uh, through the very people he is sending them to reach. Look again with me at verse 4 and you'll see it. He says this, In whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. So these missionaries have nothing, they need everything, and it seems that they are to kind of, if I were to be a little bit crude, mooch onto the one family that initially receives them. If they let you in, oh, that's good, stay there. Don't go until they kick you out, right? I thought about this. I was like, man, this sounds a little strange to me at first, right? You just gotta, as you try to bridge context into our day, it's like, well, I just don't know if this would go well in Silicon Valley. Like, just imagine this for a moment. I'm knocking on the doors of our neighborhood here. Hey, my name's Nick. I'm a a Christian. I love Jesus. I wanna, you know, I wanna be his missionary. He wants me to share the gospel with anybody that will listen. Are you, are you, are you interested? Have you heard him? Do you mind if I just tell you a little bit about Oh, sure, sure, that sounds great. Come on in. Oh, thank you so much. Well, while I get my Bible out and turn to the right page or whatever it is, would you mind? I'm a little hungry. Can you go get me a sandwich, please? And matter of fact, after you've made me a sandwich, could you, you might want to get out those fresh sheets, put them on the bed, because I'm going to be spending the night. Yeah, yeah, see, that would not go well for us here, right? So you, you bridge countries like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't understand how this sounds like a good idea, but there are a few things we need to know uh, to start to make sense of this directive here and why there is such wisdom behind it and what Jesus is doing. The first thing is just simply cultural. We've got to understand it's a different scenario. Um, it was it was not uncommon. In fact, uh, when Jews were traveling in that day, it was almost expected that they would be uh, uh, supported by fellow Jews in the cities that they were going through. Okay, so this sort of hospitality would customarily be extended to travelers, Jew to fellow Jew. That's the first thing. Don't you wish we had that here? That would be neat. I guess you do. Couchsurfing.com supposedly works, but I'm not sure I want to surf on anybody's couch. (laughs) 
second thing is um, we need to see that what Jesus is trying to do um, here, he's trying to develop in his disciples uh, something that I think runs contrary to our nature. And this is actually quite profound. I had a whole lot more on this, but I had, I had to cut it all out. <laughs> Sorry I always say that. But he's trying to develop in them a sense of vulnerability, a sense of humility. Think about this. I am, I am asking you to take nothing on this missions trip that you're going on so that where you go, you actually need everything from them. You go needy. You go vulnerable. You have to open up your heart, your life to these people because you will need them. There can be no air of superiority in these missionaries. There can be none. There is shared humanity here. There is a meeting in the place of desperation. That's what's so awesome. This reminded me of what, how Jesus begins the conversation with the woman at the well. Do you remember how it begins? It begins with him actually saying, hey, can I have some water from your well? In other words, come and say, I'm going to meet you in your humanity. We as Christians oftentimes kind of think, man, we come in with all the answers. We come in with what, you know, something to give. We definitely don't need anything back, and we certainly don't have anything to learn from you. And he's saying, no, no, no. I want you to go with nothing so there's this sort of brokenness to you. And you meet these people in the shared humanity and the dependence that you have on God and a desire for them. It, it, it's this wonderful thing that establishes relationship with these people. So not only do they come with power, the power of the Spirit, casting out demons, healing, but they also come humble and in need of daily bread and a place to stay. It's really, really quite profound. There is a third thing I wanted to bring out to help us understand what he's doing here, and that is, I think, this sort of relationship that uh, can be developed here when we linger with a person in their place, this actually becomes the context uh, where we can more meaningfully not be served, but serve them. Okay, so I think ultimately Jesus' mission isn't, hey guys, go get what you deserve. You're doing this work, you should be in there getting whatever you want and then heading out without saying a thank you or whatever it is. It's like, no, I think his, his greater, his ultimate aim is you get into relationships with people. You start building that and you will know how to serve. In meaningful ways. You will know how to speak the gospel in meaningful ways. This gets at what we were talking about for the past three weeks. You will know how the gospel relates because you will watch how mom and dad struggle or you'll watch as he opens up his wallet and realizes there's nothing there and see the needs or the ways that they need. You will see the aches in his back and know where to lay your hand and bring healing. You'll become a part of the village, a part of the town, a part of the neighborhood, not just kind of cruising in and out but staying there because in that relational context you can more meaningfully minister the gospel so at the end of the day it's not hey uh, we are here to kind of mooch it's actually no i'm here to bless i'm here to bless they've been sent don't forget to proclaim and to heal that's why they're there not to fill their bellies or whatever So Jesus, it seems, 
puts around the whole evangelistic encounter this relational context. Uh, you're going to be vulnerable. You're going to need. You're going you're gonna to live with these people. You're going to share a roof. You're going to walk the same dirt roads. You're going to minister to them. And in that, you're going to evangelize. You're going to bring the kingdom. As one commentator writes, um, the gospel is rightly propagated not by campaigning, crusading, or conquering, but within a context of relationships defined by mutual trust and sharing. So what we see then here, if I could put it this way, is that Jesus is saying, man, uh, there is both a front end and a back end to our evangelism. There is this relational context that has a front end and a back end on either side of our evangelism. On the front end, we need to remember that this is not just a kind of hit and run kind of a thing, a drop a gospel bomb and then kind of run for shelter. That's not how we do this. This is come in and stay a while. This is put ourselves in position to actually get to know the people that we are trying to reach. Front end. There's a front end to it. I think that's part of what he means by stay there. But then there's a back end to it as well. When a, per, when a person is interested in the gospel, when a person wants to hear more, when a person, man, wouldn't it be awesome, actually comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't say, well, awesome, my job here is done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to the next town. Now, you see Paul and others, they do this, but even Paul will wrap back around, visit again, or write letters, whatever it is. There is a back end to the relationship. You might call it discipleship. So the Great Commission, it is not go into all the world and make converts, right? And once you've made a convert, you're done. No, it's go into the world and make disciples. So in other words, when you make converts, when people do come to Jesus, bow the knee to the king and come into his kingdom, the job has only just begun. Now you begin to teach them all the things he's commanded them, you know, commanded and and show them what it looks like to follow and walk. The way that Paul would talk about it, he would say, now we become their parent in the faith. Like he would say to Timothy, I mean, I became your father because I'm the one who led you to the Lord. I become almost your parent. You were born again through my ministry. And what kind of a parent said, well, I'm out of here then. Now, that, that would be bad parenting. So the idea is, man, I want to try to invest in you now. So there's a front end to our evangelism and a back end. There is a relational context on either side of our sharing the gospel. I think that is what Jesus means by stay there. And I wonder, are we doing this with anyone? Do we have any front-end relationships that you can think of right now? People, unbelievers in your life that you're pursuing with love, that you're desiring to get to know. You're going to where they are. You're sharing humanity with them, eating food, crying, laughing, whatever it might be. 
doing life, getting to know them and meaningfully ministering the gospel to them in that context. Front-end relationships. Do you have any back-end relationships? Do you have any people in your life that uh, young believers maybe that you are trying to pour yourself into because you desire to see them grow in conformity to the image of Christ? And though you're still a sinner, you hope and pray and trust you have something to offer a young believer. Again, I'll just leave those questions out there for you to pray and consider. We'll move into now. I I should say there are, uh, well, there are a number of nuances to all that I just said. I have no problem with knocking on doors, talking to people and going. Okay, but you can talk to me afterwards if you have questions. So first directive, take nothing. Second directive, stay there. Third and now final, shake off. This is verse five. Uh, What we see in this final directive that Jesus gives to his disciples is that it's not always going to go well. It's not always going to go well. They're not always going to say, come on in, I'll get you a sandwich and I'll make up the bed. Sometimes they're going to say, get the heck out of my town. I don't want to see your face again. You call yourself a Jew, you're coming in, bringing these sorts of words to me. Get out of here. Some people, though we try to develop relationships, though we try to meaningfully share and show the gospel, though we genuinely love them, they won't have it. They won't be interested at all. That's what we see there in verse 5. Let's read it. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So let's be clear. Again, there's perhaps some things we lose in translation. Uh, when he says, shake it off, he's not talking Taylor Swift. You know, you feeling me on that? He's not talking about, hey, rejection hurts. It's not so fun. But, you know, I believe in you. You could do it. Get back up again. Shake it off. I'm not talking about that. There is something so much more serious that he means here when he's talking about shaking the dust off of their feet. It's actually this vivid way of displaying God's judgment against the Jewish town that is rejecting their Messiah. Remember, they're being sent to the Jews right now. Acts 2 is when things start to move towards the world. And you watch through the whole rest of the book of Acts, how it goes out to the Gentiles. Right now, just the, 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 the lost sheep of Israel. Here we are. He's saying you reject the Messiah. This, this, this dust, brushing the dust off your feet is like this vivid picture of God's judgment on that town. Let me read to you one commentator on this. There was a rabbinic idea, he writes, that the dust of Gentile lands carried defilement. And strict Jews are said to have removed it, the dust, from their shoes whenever they returned to Palestine from abroad. Come back into the Holy Land, get the dust of the Gentiles off of your feet lest you bring uncleanness Back with you into the land. In verse 5 then. The disciples shaking of the dust from their feet. Was a testimony against not Gentiles. But now fellow Jews. 
It declared in symbol that Israelites who rejected the kingdom were no better than the Gentiles. They did not belong to the people of God. Are you hearing how serious that is? I mean, there is no way to, to, to unpack the severity of this situation in redemptive history that the people of God are now being <laughs> in, in pictorial representation said to be no longer the people of God, but just as the Gentiles. That is a frightening thing on both sides of the equation, is it not? You don't want to have that done to you. And it's quite scary to bring that sort of a message to people, your brothers and sisters, people you love. But man, if this doesn't go right for you, if, 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 if you don't, I'm sorry, if you don't receive the Messiah, it's not going to go well. It's not going to go well. Again, what Jesus is kind of implying in this directive, he will say clearly later. This is the sort of thing we read about in Luke 13, 34 to 35, when he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. I'm moving on. Or he would say it in a parable. I'm taking the vineyard from those who didn't keep it. But they killed every steward I sent to it. And they even killed the son of the owner of the vineyard. I'm taking that vineyard from them and I am giving it now to a people who will bear its fruits which we come to find later on, Gentiles. It's crazy reversal going on in these moments. Here is the outworking of what Paul would write in Romans 9, 6. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Ethnicity doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. Children of Abraham by the flesh, but not by the Spirit. There is no salvation for you. Gentile by the flesh, but child of Abraham by the Spirit in the kingdom. It's not ethnicity. It's faith in the Son of David. Faith in the Messiah. You reject the Messiah, though you be a Jew, you're a Gentile. That's what this means. That's a frightening thought. Here's really where we come to a massive test of our own allegiances. When we start to bring this into our own day and extrapolate some 
guiding principles for us. Here's where we really come to a test of our own allegiances, do we not? Because what we see here is essentially what Simeon, speaking of Christmas, what Simeon would would prophesy over the newborn Jesus in the temple. Do you remember this? Luke 2, 34 to 35, he says this, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising. The fall. Not just all good here. The fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. When Jesus is proclaimed, people start to divide. Even within Israel, the fall and the rise because of this son, will he bring peace? Will he bring joy? Will he bring reconciliation? Absolutely. But he will also bring division. Jesus would say it himself, even within your own household. Father, mother, child. Some will cling to the Savior. Others will say, get real. That peasant from Nazareth? I don't think so. We want a king. And the dividing line runs. And the question for us is, which side of it are we on? And that's what we have to face. And this is one of the, this is the other points why I hesitated earlier when I said, oh, this is the most searching point of the sermon for me. This probably was right here. We have to realize, man, why do we not always open our mouths? Why sometimes, man, don't we like to kind of water down, dilute, not talk about judgment like this sort of thing? Dust from my feet because you are unclean before God and there is judgment coming. That is crazy stuff. Now, I couldn't do all that I wanted to do in talking about how this relates to Gentiles and our mission because it is a little different. You never see them do that. You see them do this in the book of Acts, but never to Gentiles, always to Jews. It's akin to excommunication because they were the people of God. Now they're not. I'm getting beyond myself, though. I'm sorry. But what I do want us to know is that we have to decide what side of the line we're on. Are we going to stand with Christ and fear God alone? And be willing to say the hard word. Even if it means we're not popular. Even if it means we divide even among family. And they don't like us. They don't want us to come to the dinner for Christmas. Because they know we're Christians. They don't like what we have to say. Because the cross is offensive and it's foolish. And everything we stand for rubs against them the wrong way. So we know when we walk in the room, we're the black sheep that nobody wants to talk to. Are we going to stand for him on that side of the line or try to blend, distort, dilute the gospel until before long, we're no longer even preaching the gospel, we're no longer his missionaries. It's not a both and. You cannot be friends with the world and with God, he says. You've got to pick which side of the line are you on. That's what this brings to the fore for these disciples, some of their own brothers. Children of Abraham, I'm sorry, you're Gentiles to us and to God. Not I don't love you, but this is serious. This is serious. I will say one final thing about this third directive. We're almost done. And that is that it gives us a strange comfort. There's actually a strange comfort I took in this final piece of instruction because here's what I realized. Success in the mission isn't up to me. Jesus just names it up front. He says, guys, it's not going to go well in every city. Let's just be real. 
You're going to do the same thing you did everywhere else. It worked well there. It's not going to work well here. Whatever it is. He just names it up front. The way that I would put it is like this. You are uh, commissioned by God, but you're not on commission. Do you hear me? You know what I mean? You're not working in a department store with a base salary, and if you don't sell X number of thigh masters or stair masters or whatever it is, you don't get more paycheck. That's what it means to be on commission. I kind of love you more when you close the deal and make the sale. That's not what it means to be commissioned. He's saying, I'm commissioning you. You go. You leave the results up to me. Sometimes what pleases me more than anything is when you're faithful, even in the face of rejection and failure. Failure. Isn't that awesome? It's a strange comfort we take. Our job is to be faithful. His job is to close the deal. Make the sale. He just names it up front. It's going to be hard. That hurts. That grieves us. But it also should relieve us a little bit. Right? No. This is where we will close. I, I, I wonder how you're doing in all of this. Um, I don't think I'm the only one that looks at this list and goes, my goodness, I am blowing it. <laughs> I'm blowing it. I mean, urgency, I, I struggle to feel that. I feel like, you know, preparing this or getting that ready or doing this for the ministry or, 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 or balancing my budget, whatever. That all feels more urgent to me than reaching people for Jesus sometimes. Or depending on God and trusting Him, taking nothing in, if not in, in the flesh, but at least in my heart, taking nothing. Like I don't need anything. I have God. Trusting Him like that. I struggle with that. Or relationships, moving in and staying there. That's hard. If I do go in and stay there, well, I find that it's hard for me. I get kind of worried or, or, or I get worked up in my mind. How am I going to bring the gospel in? And then you never bring it up or whatever it is. Or maybe you avoid relationships. I don't want to get all that close because they kind of mess up my stuff. And maybe you take that third directive and you look at it and you go, man, I'm not so good at standing on the line or on the other side of the line for Jesus. I fear people all the time. I see their faces. I don't want to say the thing that's going to make them not like me, whatever it is. It's, this is hard. I'm blowing it on every level, it looks like. You go, what, what do I do now? And here's the thing. I cannot and I will not try to manhandle us into obedience because that never works. How do you grow as a missionary for Jesus? It's not by, well, guys, let's just suck it up. Eat more power bars, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, Red Bull gives you wings. Do some of that and we will get moving here. No, that's not what it is. It's not manhandling. It's actually holding out the man. Hold out before you the one who did this perfectly. And who is in us and goes with us. Consider this again with me. I mean, here it is, Christmas, right? Think about it. As far as I'm concerned, you want to know one of the reasons why I don't always do a, a, a Christmas series? Every text is a Christmas text. Every day is Christmas to me. Every day I need the incarnation. Let's think about it from, from, from perspective of this text. Jesus comes. What does he take with him? Nothing. He is the archetypal missionary, is he not? He's the one sent from God. What does he take with him from heaven and the glories that he knew? Nothing. He doesn't even have like a pocket full of heaven's treasure. Nothing. Poor, empty, 
with the animals. Trusting his father, sensing the urgency of the situation. Moving in now. Let's look at the second directive. He stays with us, does he not? Develops relationships, meets us in our humanity. Disciples, loves, gets in the grime and the dirt of our lives. Who wants to do that? Jesus does. And then when it comes down to it and everyone thinks he's not the king that they wanted or the king that he should be for them, when even his disciples decide it's time to hightail it out of here because this is going bad, he does not, he does not, though he loves the people, he does not buckle to their desires and and blend the line. He stands firm for God. He stands firm as God's prophet, as God's mouthpiece. And lets it be known, if you don't side with me, it's not going to go well. He goes to the cross, even in the face of that. Gives his own life for it. Because he knows that's what sinners like you and I need more than anything. People like you and I that don't trust him and depend on him. That don't do relationships very well, but get selfish and scared and self-concerned and all that. And don't do very well at fearing God alone, but are afraid of all sorts of things. He knows we need forgiveness of sin. And a new power in us. And he takes it all the way to the end on that cross. And then he rises again from the dead. And let me tell you something. He is here in this room this morning. The missionary Savior is in this room this morning. And the way you get like this is not by sweating a little bit more. Working a little bit harder is by getting on your face. Repenting before the missionary who is here. Jesus Christ and say, I need you. Give me more of that spirit. Give me more of your work in me so that I can trust the Father. I can press into relationships and I can stand with God in the face of opposition. That's how it works. Repentance and faith. So let's do that here this morning. Let's call out on him. Let's ask him. That's what he's committed to do with us. Conform us to his image. He will make us more like this in the neighborhoods, the city, the world, Mexico, wherever you're going. Thank you for your time. Let's pray. <laughs> God, we, we rejoice that it is not up to us to come up with this sort of strength, with this sort of passion. That you already have it and you supply that for us. As we come to you in turn, you ask us to repent. You ask us to turn from the things you reveal that we're just clinging on to that are wrong and sinful. And you, you, you promise to meet us in that with fresh power and forgiveness and help. So God, we, we don't just need Christmas one day a year. We need you with us, Emmanuel, every day. We need you living your life out again through us by your spirit. So we invite you here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.